Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. We are still in the midst of self-isolating here in the nation's capital, and I've been really lucky that I've been sent a couple new books and I've gotten to read them uh, to pass the time within this isolating period. Excited to talk about one of those books today, a story that before I read this book, I had no idea uh, of this story and how interesting it is, sort of the drama in it. It's, it's a real life history story told by a historian in a non-academic way, which is always a lot of fun to read. The book is The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier. And I'm very pleased to be joined by the author, Chad Reimer. Chad, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me from all the way on the other side of the country. You're out there uh, on the West Coast. How is life out there right now? Uh, life is fine. Uh, we, we, too, are self-isolating. Um, we're doing quite well. Uh, people, I'm a little nervous. People, the um, limits have been lifted a bit, and people think it's over. But, right. <laughs> but um, the kids aren't going to school. Which I'm kind of happy about. Yeah. So yeah, we're all just sort of getting used to uh, to the new normal. And for me, part of that new normal is uh, I have a giant pillow, and I I put it down, and I lean against it, and I I read, and I turn off everything. I just sit by the window, use the sun for reading. One of the things I read was your book again, The Trials of Albert Strobel. This is a really interesting story. It happens in the 1890s in British Columbia. Uh, between what is it between Al Abbotsford and Kelowna? Am I right? And the geography here? Abbotsford and Chilliwack. Al Abbotsford and Chilliwack, right along the American border. And, you know, my first question is you're obviously out there, closer to the region where this happened. Is this story, this murder story, is it something that is local lore there? And, and if not, how did you come across the story? No, it's um, not not well known at all. Uh, not not known at all, actually. Um, I, I came across it when I was doing research that I thought would lead to an, an article. And I was research into the the uh, lynching in 1884, a Canada's only verifiable lynching um, of a of a Samath Sumas native boy named Louis Sam. Um, that has grown into the book I'm working on now because there's incidents before and after that uh, make it look like the Wild West in, in Sumas. Um, but as I was researching the legal uh, material at the Provincial Archives, I came across the transcripts of this trial, but not just one trial, but two trials that Albert Strobel uh, was put through, uh, and, you know, the murder that he had allegedly committed. And the more I dug, the more information there was. But I had never come across a mention of this uh, in any in any works, local histories, whatever. They were both, I mean, John Marshall was not, he was not uh, 
a quote unquote pioneer, not because he wasn't there before, you know, the first whites who were involved, but he was Portuguese. And um, his name was not John Marshall, of course, when he was born, but he accepted it. And he just wasn't within the, the charter group of, of founders because of his ethnicity. And so the local histories didn't have any mention of it either, even though a creek was named after him. Um, so it was it was brand new. And I, I find that, you know, for me, it's that, that's what it's about. It's, uh, history as detective, yeah, finding out stuff that uh, is not. And that's the most fun. Yeah, I, I agree. It's always fun when you can have these stories that have been lost to time and forgotten that you can you can sort of breathe life into and, and almost reinvestigate them as you do here. So the story follows, as you said, the, tri the trials, plural, of Albert Strobel. And you mentioned John Marshall, so Portuguese immigrant who is a farmer who is found dead one morning. Uh, he's been murdered. And th this is one of these interesting things to me because... I don't watch them as much anymore, but, you know, watching police shows and stuff and, you know, how they come out and they're like, all right, we got to get, you know, DNA and ballistics testing and all this stuff. When, when you come across this type of a story and a murder in the 1890s, what is your initial thought in terms of how did the people then like what strategies are the police using to try to figure out who did this? Right. They have a dead body and that's it. Right, like, like, so what are, what are the police doing initially to try and figure out what's going on? Well, the police don't do anything initially because there, <laughs> there are no police. Um, Sumas uh, just had recently been connected to the, the Canadian Pacific Railway line, which ran on the north side of the Fraser River. Uh, Sumas is on the south side. And so they, they were being connected to New Westminster and so forth. Uh, before that, the only way to get to New Westminster, the closest city, was on the, the Yale Road. Chilliwack was across a lake, Sumas Lake, which I write, write about in the previous book. And so they were very isolated. And the community itself was only a few dozen uh, farms, really. And... Um, there wasn't a constable. Uh, there were justices of the peace, magistrates, and they had certain authority. But uh, for a policeman to come, they had to send to New Westminster. So what happened was the, the body was discovered at, at about six in the morning, uh, dawn, six, seven in the morning. Um, the telegraph office, which was at the railway depot, they got the telegrapher, uh, uh, sent a telegraph to, to New Westminster, and the, the acting police superintendent, who is also the warden of, of the jail, he gets in contact with the coroner, and they will arrive at about two in the afternoon. So, you know, telegraph goes at seven in the morning, and by the time they arrive, it's, it's two in the afternoon. In that meantime, uh, nobody really takes control of the crime scene. I mean, the, the, the word spread like wildfire. And by the time the local justice of the peace gets there, at about 10 o'clock, uh, 9 or 10 o'clock, 
there's about 20 or 30 people, uh, neighbors walking all over, you know, the, the, the veranda where his body is, the, his cabin, his house, the, the farmyard and so forth. So, um, and then of course, when the, when the police, uh, when the police superintendent, um, William Marsby gets there at around two, He's absolutely livid, of course, because, you know, <laughs> this is a crime scene. But that <laughs> in and of itself, even in the cities, the notion of crime scene was not particularly um, well entrenched. So it's I read back on these and I I, I find it. And, and as this case progresses, you'll see even more. It's, I, I, you know, with with. My the current perspective, I find it amazing that anyone got convicted anytime <laughs> because right, of yeah. <laughs> that's how rudimentary the, the police work was. Yeah, I think Seinfeld has a great bit about you know how before any of the technology that we sort of understand as policing today, it was like the detective would come and look at the body and say, well, he fell this way. That means that Jim must be the killer. It's like yeah. you're just sort of taking guesses at, at, at who commits these crimes. Or, or that's what it seems like when, when you look back in terms of how modern policing and, and investigative work tends to be done. But I'm, I'm thinking to, you know, John Marshall, here's this guy. He's a farmer, Portuguese immigrant. How does he even end up in a place like Sumas? given sort of where he grew up, what his background was, how isolated the area was. It, it's not a place where just on first blush, I would expect to find a Portuguese immigrant farmer. So how does he get there? Yeah, I mean, he's actually from the Azores Islands. So that's that's even more. Yeah. It is and it isn't. I mean, the Azores was a, was a stopping off point for ships heading towards the Americas. Uh, and there were a good number of, of Portuguese immigrants through the 1850s, 60s, like so many others, small island, no land, no opportunity. So he heads out for California, uh, heads out to, to try his luck at uh, uh, mining. And he spends uh, some time there uh, in the 1870s and so forth. Um, he... He has some luck. Yeah, he does. And his ideal, like the ideal of most of the, the, the white immigrants coming, was to own their, his own land, particularly own his own farm. So coming from California, he moved further north, like any number of people did, because land was, you know, you're seeing the closing of the frontier. That is, the open land comes more and harder and harder to get um you know we always think because of the immigrants moving and so forth but also because almost half of it was giving away given away to the railway companies right um so you know most of the people who end up in the northwestern part of washington and up into bc at the time just kept going further and further looking for land and he, uh, Marshall is able to, to, to uh, he, he, he uh, arrives in about 1883 or four, exact date's unclear, and he was able to stake out a quarter section, 160 acres. 
and actually within a couple of years uh, pay for it, which very few farmers did. Most of them um, preempted and then wanted to improve and get it for free, um, which here's another mark of the times. If you were an Anglo-American and you came across the line, um, you could preempt without question. Nobody said, the law said you had to be a British subject, but, you know, come on, between friends, right? Um, but Marshall wasn't an Anglo-American. He was a Portuguese, and he was, they wouldn't let him preempt, essentially. So he paid for his land, and it wasn't terribly expensive, according to the time, and uh, that's how he ended up. And so you get a lot of people, like, this is the end of the road, and this is where people end up because there's no further way to go. <laughs> so, so he's there. As you say, he's, he's pretty successful. He's you know living a, a good life, have a you know, farming there in Sumas, and then of course he gets murdered. And the book, of course, is titled "The Trials of Albert Strobel." So, who was Albert Strobel, and what was his background, and, and what brought him? into Sumas and, and sort of what was his uh, heritage that led him to this point that he was connected to John Marshall. Right. Strobel was, uh, was 20 years old at the time of the murder. Um, he came from a, a large family. Uh, uh, had like three brothers and three sisters. Uh, his father was a German immigrant and um, they're from the Midwest, Illinois, Indiana area. And um, his father came across from Germany. He fought in the Civil War, hoping that that would get him uh, his citizenship. After the war, he got married. They started having a family. And he was a baker. And he, he like many Civil War veterans, like many veterans from wars, found it very difficult to settle down to domestic life. Uh, he also had a, a drinking problem. And by this time he had like six children, seven children. And he tried one thing, tried the other, and um, decided to head out west once again. Uh, once again, went through California, uh, dragging the family and a long-suffering wife with him and um, headed further north, looking for foreland. Uh, in the 1880s, about, uh, around the same time that John Marshall arrived in the area, um, he arrived with, uh, on his own, he staked out land um, just west of Sunan's Prairie, and it, it brought his family out, and then, um, which included Strobel, who was the third oldest son. The oldest son died of, of consumption along the way. So his family's up. And then Strobel's older brother, even though he was only 16, preempted another plot of land um, just a mile away from where Marshall lived. And they moved in there in the early 1890s. But just the, bo just the young, you know, the boys did. Uh, then things fell apart as they were falling apart every place the Strobel family went. His father uh, was drinking more, the mother died, um, and the Strobel and his older brother were kind of left on their own to take care of the younger kids 
in on their land just just south of, of where Marshall lived. And Strobel made himself useful, Albert Strobel and his brother. They hired themselves out to the local farmers to work and so forth. But they just couldn't make a go of it. Uh, his older brother sold off the land. And Albert stuck around. His, his siblings kind of dispersed. But Albert stuck around and he moved into just across the line to uh, uh, Sumas City. Um, and he still, you know, into a hotel owned by the Bartlett family. And he still would go back across the line and work for the farmers there. And he actually became, you know, as close a, a friend as he could to, to Marshall. He, he, he would be at the Mar Marshall's house quite regularly, help out with the, the, the cleaning of the house, help out in the, in the fields and so forth. So that's how he, he ended up on, and you mentioned that relationship between Marshall and Strobel that they knew each other in life and obviously before Marshall's murder. And this is one of these things that is, it, it, it's, I mean, this is weird to say, but you know, if, if you were a murderer in the 1800s, you would just want to like roam from place to place and make sure nobody knew who you were. Cause it always seems like they would just, try to find somebody who is close to you, right? So if you were a murderer, that would probably be the best strategy at that time where there's no way to trace you. But, it, you know, it, it seems to me that initially when they're they're investigating, uh, quote unquote, investigating the, the murder, murder of Marshall, what is that process through which they come to identify Strobel? And why is it, him that eventually is is sort of the center of the investigation because he makes so many bonehead mistakes <laughs> <laughs> um initially and here comes like when morris becomes in uh in, in into marshall's house and there were people around and there was a fellow by the name of david lucas who was there who was this this one of the most interesting characters in there he was the American Marshal of Sunan City, and he filled Morrisby in on what the neighbors had been saying and and otherwise. And the first, uh, this is British Columbia, so the first person suspected was a, a, a Chinese man, which is it was just done instinctually. <laughs> That's right. right. Um, but it pretty soon they they pretty soon zeroed in on. Strobel, because one of the neighbors uh, who had been working with Strobel the day before, uh, ditching, and within sight of where Marshall was working on his farm, uh, Strobel had, you know, when he uh, came over to help his fellow, uh, William Porter, uh, dig a ditch, Strobel had thrown his jacket off and then thrown his revolver onto his jacket. That was the day of the alleged murder. And Porter let it be known that Strobel was seen with this gun and uh, was one of the last to see Marshall. So suspicion right away came, came onto Strobel uh, because of that. And, with it, and the investigations happened over the next day or a couple of days, and then Strobel was arrested. It's like the first 48 show. 
<laughs> so you got to well, yeah. it in right away. Yeah. What actually happens is that Strobel goes back to Sumas City, and McBride sets up Shaw headquarters and the hotel just north of the line. And actually, the person who, who's doing the investigation is, is David Lucas, the former, the marsh, part-time marsh of Sumas City, who's a real, you know, hard-edged, typical Western Western Marshal. And he actually, he, he tricks Strobel into handing over his gun. And he says, he says to Strobel, oh, I heard that, that the doctor said that he was killed with a 44 caliber gun. Well, the doctor hadn't examined uh, <laughs> Marshall at all. And Strobel said, oh, well, you know, that's, that lets me off because I have a 38 caliber. Oh, well, why don't you show it to me? So Strobel goes up and he brings it down and he hands Marshall the gun. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> and Marshall, and, and, and Lucas the gun, hands David Lucas the gun. And then Lucas goes snooping around and he finds some live cartridges. And then he quote unquote finds most likely plants, two empty cartridges. Um, but he, he didn't, he doesn't give the gun back. He doesn't give the cartridges back. And of course that gun in, in, in any modern court, this is a, a private citizen in the United States who tricks the suspect into giving him the gun. He takes the gun, brings it back across the, the international border and gives it to, Mo and gives it, well, he, he shows it to Moresby and he keeps it for a couple of weeks and then presents it at the magistrate court. I mean, no court would accept that as a evidence, right? But they right. And if it wasn't for that gun, if they did not have that gun, things would have gone completely different. Right. So yeah. So the gun is a, a central, almost a character in and of itself. Of course. Yes. In the story. Yes. Uh, now a, another character in the story, because it wouldn't be a great Western story yes. or, or a great murder story if we didn't have a femme fatale in there too. <laughs> Uh, so you, you, you mentioned the Bartlett family earlier, and you have Elizabeth Bartlett as this this woman character who is uh, engaged and, and is a central character here. What is her role in this whole story, and, and why does she play such a, a role in the book? Well, for one, she's, she's not a woman. She's a girl. Uh, she's right. Yes, you're right. I should. Yes, she's, yeah, she's very young. 12 years old, yes. um, everyone at the time was saying 14, which was actually quite a common time, 14, common time for girls to marry on the, on the Western frontier. Um, because girl, uh, women were, I mean, there was such a, a gender disparity. Uh, anyway, um, she's the daughter of the woman that owns and runs the hotel that uh, Strobel is staying in. And Strobel is, uh, he's physically handicapped. His right leg is permanently uh, twisted, some kind of either arthritis or disease of the bone. Um, and he's also emotionally, intellectually uh, uh, handicapped in, 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 in the sense that he can, he's good on details, but he can't get the, 
be conceptual things and emotionally. It, you know, there were three Bartlett daughters, and he he hooked up with the youngest one, uh, which makes you know kind a kind of sense. And he gets, you know, starts walking out with her. You know, the the the, the big thing to do on a date back then, and they get engaged. They talk how clear it was between them that they were going to get married. It's not clear, but they, they get engaged to be married. And, um, her mother eventually comes around on this. Now, at the same time, um, John Marshall, uh, ha and this is according to, to Strobel later, John Marshall, ha um, was saying suggestive things about Elizabeth Bartlett um, and even suggesting that he wanted to marry her or she was his girlfriend. Um, this is the 38-year-old Marshall saying this, unmarried. Um, but that was, according to Strobel's later accounts, that was what the, the, the fight that did happen. That's what that was about. That he Marshall had said lewd, made lewd comments about Elizabeth Bartlett and said he wanted to marry her and and Strobel uh, defend, defended her honor. That was right. that that was his defense. Eventually, that would be be his defense. Right. So we have sort of the principles now set up. We have um, Marshall who's murdered Strobel is accused we have the the bartlett family we have this gun as a piece of evidence I, i'm curious you know I, I, we don't want to spoil too much of what's in the book but of course the the title is the trials plural so the first trial ends up in, in a hung jury and what was the trial like you know we think of you know these stylized old trials and that you see in you know black and white movies, but but in practice, in 1890s British Columbia, what did a trial actually look like? Well, by that time, I mean it was a new courtroom, and um, the legal establishment in British Columbia uh, tried to be more British than the British, and in a lot of ways, their you know legal historians have said that you know. They were more respectful of things like wigs and they wore wigs and they wore gowns and, and they wanted to, you know, show off the pomp of, of the court. So, and as I say, the, the, the courthouse was, had been built, um, a few years before. So it wasn't that different. There's a modernization involved in New Westminster in the courts. Um, so you had a proper, stand where the witness would, would well where the witness would stand and, and, and testify. Uh you had the jury box set aside. So it it actually was quite familiar. Uh and the trial itself, um everything was about, you know, in 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 at the time, um uh, their notions of evidence were very different. And so they would constantly talk about direct evidence as opposed to circumstantial evidence. And their notion of circumstantial evidence similar to ours, right? Like, 
you know, so-and-so was seen leaving the house with blood on his hands might be a suspect, even though those are circumstances, because at the time you can't connect blood. But their notion of direct evidence was not physical evidence. Physical evidence was just starting to become important. Direct evidence was eyewitness evidence. There was that, and there was also so many, so much of their case cases depended upon what the defendant said to somebody else afterwards. Hmm. And so, you know, what might be called hearsay evidence today. So that what prosecutor in almost every case presented was after the murder, so-and-so did this. That looked suspicious. So-and-so talked, he talked to the neighbor and said this. That is very suspicious. And a lot of the case is, is based on that sort of thing, as well as eyewitness, if there is an eyewitness. And if not, then circumstantial. But the direct physical evidence, actually the trial, the first trial was more old-fashioned in that physical evidence didn't play as big a role, whereas in the second trial, it was decisive. And it was probably the first trial in BC history that um, relied upon convincing the jury that the slug in the, the bullet in the, in, the, in the murdered man's body came from this gun. And it wasn't actually, they didn't have the means to do that yet, really. Um, but the, the jury became convinced that that was the case. Because, right. because of the identifying marks on the bullet matching rust marks on, on the, the gun as opposed to spiral, you know, spiraling marks. And so it was one of the first cases that, that involved that direct of a link. Yeah, so how much of that is setting a precedent for the judicial system, at least in British Columbia? You know, the, the frontier, of course, has the the reputation and when people think about it in this romantic way of what you see in the movies again you know the john waynes of the world settling scores you know on their own terms in the right way and you know the person who runs the area is the one who's the quickest on the draw and, and that kind of thing and now we have this this you know it, it's like you know one of my favorite movies is the man who shot liberty valance right where you have the the character the ransom starter character who wants to bring in law and the john wayne character is all about using the gun to to do it and, and this story almost feels like those two worlds kind of clashing that you you know you have this end of the frontier place while at the same time you have as, as you're talking about this examination of a physical evidence that is kind of changing the way in which the legal system, at least from my perception of, of going through this, is working. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, how much of this case, even if it is, you know, forgotten largely long term, how much of it is a, a precedent setting situation within the area? Um, I think it did have a, a, an important impact. Um, and, and you're right, it is, it's this jarring contrast before, between Sumas Prairie with no police or judicial presence, and then New Westminster, which is, you know, had a new jail, new courthouse, and all the pomp of the British uh, judicial system. 
what's so critical is the main players in it are are you know central players in not, not just the courts but also the um, political system. So I uh, the both of the judges, the, the judge in both trials, as well as the prosecuting attorney in both, each, a serious case is prosecuted by the attorney general. Um, those three characters were all were a, attorney general of the province at some point, as well as premier. And the defense attorney uh, became a, a, a Supreme Court judge. So... Seeing this, seeing the way the trial worked out, I, I think certainly in their minds, it would have had an impact on other cases. Uh, and the judge, George Wacom, judge in the first trial, who was, who had been premier in the 1870s, he wrote in his summary uh, of the case, the, the file that went to Ottawa, he's, he very specifically wrote that. If this bullet comes from this gun, then he's guilty. If if the jury is not convinced that this bullet comes from this gun, then there is a doubt. And so, very very specifically, yes, he 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 saw the physical evidence as as decisive. Uh, and then he went back and he did his usual thing as well. Uh, judges will always say we always think of them as impartial, but he the Wacom did not let um, Strobel defend himself. He mm -hmm. took over the questioning, like the questioning of Strobel. Strobel took the stand. Um, he actually, this was the first year in which defendants could take the stand in their own defense. Strobel would, would be on the stand for nine hours over two days, and he was standing. And he, was, he was crippled. He did, you didn't sit as a witness. Anyway, um, the judge, when it was time for the defense attorney to question Strobel and present his defense, the judge broke in and monopolized the questioning of Strobel. And um, it would not be allowed today, that sort of right. action. And the judge got more and more hostile towards the defense as it went on. And so, you know, in the judge's finding, okay, this physical evidence is true but also you know they when they thought somebody was guilty or lying on the stand the judges felt no compunction of engaging in character assassination saying he you know his manner on the stand was shifty um, his manner of speaking was deceptive so making those so you have this modern notion of physical evidence and this old victorian notion of character <laughs> Right. Uh, I mean, he was a bad character. And he, he, the judge even, he dismissed one of the most prominent uh, citizens of Sumas Prairie, uh, successful businessman and respectable in every way, because his testimony uh, was supportive of Strobel. The judge out and out called him a liar <laughs> from the bed, from the bed. And right. not just like a little bit of a liar, but a conniving liar. <laughs> and it was like, holy darn. And it, <laughs> when you actually had a conniving liar, like the former marshal of Sumas City, uh, uh, David Lucas, he treated him very well. 
<laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it was a really weird mix of the two. Yeah, and, and, you know, it speaks too, right? We know now so much more about things like memory and, and the reliability of eyewitness accounts and the idea of, you know, being able to tell if someone's honest or not. Yeah. That, you know, the, the certain the, some of the studies that you read about that, there's really no way the, the typical signs that we see aren't always accurate. So it's so hard uh, to set it against it. But at the same time, this trial is taking place where you know you talked that you know people came out to see the body that you, when marshall was killed you know the neighbors came out there has to be a factor or part of this is driven by just general interest in a story like this right you know what what was the press doing at the time how much was public interest driving some of what was going on on the legal side if at all um Murder cases were the, the the blockbuster movies of their time. Right. Um, you know, I, I I like historical true crime. I like historical crime mystery. And um, each, you know, whenever a writer will, will look at it, Lizzie Borden case or other cases, they'll say, oh, unprecedented interest from the public. Well, it's not actually unprecedented because um, – these cases are always popular. They, not much happens in these. <laughs> and, oh, <yeah. laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have the Canucks losing another season, and you know, things like that. This this is drama. This is the drama. And so, for both trials, the courthouse was packed. They were long trials. They lasted two weeks. For that time, it was a long time, especially considering there were there was no. Uh, native testimony and what happens in in trials with native indigenous witnesses you need the translation sometimes double translation um, so it was a very long trial and and it was packed most of the time uh, and the newspapers were actually um, did a very good job of presenting the when when they decided this is a case we want to present they they presented it near verbatim um, and they they presented it in a way that that's quite useful for historians because they don't editorialize until after it's over right you know they don't you don't see that the, what you see in other towns where there's more newspaper competition where a paper will take one side and sensationalize it to the to the hill and this this was, uh, you know, the re the reporters actually, and they were used to it because often they were hired by the court itself to 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 be the stenographer, um, even though actually these cases had had an official stenographer. So the, the 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 press presented this verbatim, you know, it took up half of the newspaper. At the time, eight-page news, uh, four-page, sometimes eight-page newspaper, um, very small print. And uh, for the course of the trial, you know, it was the most interesting thing happening in the city. And so you could you could follow it in person if you were lucky, uh, or you could follow it in the newspaper. Uh, pretty much, as I say, verbatim. So. Right. 
Yeah. And and you get lucky too in that there's two of them, right? You have the first one and there's interest in it, and then we got a second one too. So it's sort of you know double yeah, the excitement, right? That has to build some of the public interest yeah. in that, you know, there is going to be this second trial. And they moved it, and the thing is, they moved it. So, so uh, first trial is the New Westminster. So the New Westminster papers, and there were two fairly good ones, two pretty decent papers at the time. Actually, in both New Westminster and Victoria, two decent papers. And so the New Westminster papers covered it, you know, like saturation coverage, first trial. And then it moved over to Victoria, and the Victoria papers covered it, you know, uh, saturation as well. So then you get that perspective there uh, in two week, only two week, two weeks later. So uh, it, it, it was, it, I, I had perhaps, you know, each trial I had three transcripts of the trial. Uh, the judge's notes where, depending on the trial, the judge spent most of his time just copying down what was said. The stenographer notes, uh, the newspaper transcripts, um, some, and one newspaper usually did the verbatim and then the other one did less. Uh, and then also at the end, so that would, would have been what, three transcripts. And then at the end, uh, when, uh, when there is a, a, a conviction in a capital case, the, the conviction automatically goes to Ottawa for approval or commutation of the sentence and in that file the judge sends his recapping of the trial and so there's a fourth uh, uh, source for, for for the testimony so in that way it's it's yeah it's 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 fantastic to if the case and if those transcripts like the stenographer's transcripts aren't always saved like they get lost and I was fortunate that these ones were saved in the, in the provincial archives. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, the, the case goes to Ottawa. I don't feel as though we're spoiling anything because on the book jacket, it says that he was convicted. So I don't feel as though that's too much of a spoiler, but, um, but, but why is it that this story doesn't end there? Like, what is it about it that makes it so compelling afterwards that, you know, you have these two trials, you have all that uncertainty. A lot of times, at least in public perception, I think people say once the decision is made, guilty, not guilty, that's it. What is it about this particular case that creates, a, as is described here, you know, all these twists and turns that happen post-verdict? Well, I mean, for one, there's no appeal. There, there was no appeal of the conviction itself. Um, so they... That, that's not what's going to happen. But what happens is the, the federal government the, the has to, the cabinet has to decide whether the execution is going to go forward or if the sentence is commuted to life in prison. And actually a good half of the, the, uh, death sentences are commuted during this time. Um, and so, you know, we think of it, you know, hang them high type of, of scenarios at the time, um, but more than half were commuted. Uh, so the, 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 the uh, suspense is, uh, well, is, is Strobel going to, to escape the news? Uh, and what actually happens is 
uh, he actually confesses. And um, he wants to, and he starts telling his story for the first time. And so for the first time, you hear a story that's very different from the story he's been telling before. And then you have to start saying, well, is that all true? Is it? Right. And that's really, it's after his conviction. When, when I, when you have the fun part of trying to figure out what happened that evening, right? And yeah. I do, I do. And I don't like it when authors play coy and they don't give you their perspective of, of what it is. You know, uh, it's like, you got to put yourself on the line. What do you think happened? And right. so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you're the one who's done all the work. I mean, you've, you're the one who's looked into it, right? So you have all the information. So that, that was, that's where it's like, okay, okay. We, oh, I think suspense and maybe the trial should have gone the way it did or didn't. That's a different question. And then a brand new question comes up about exactly what happened. And then you have Strobel's accounts and you, you can compare it with the physical evidence and the big, the big question looming over it all is, is he going to be executed? Uh, he also tries to escape twice. And so there's that. He's, he's got elaborate escape plans. And so there's lots happening. Uh, and then, you know, the execution dates the end of January and that's approaching. And, you, you know, even the, the, yeah, they're 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 building the the scaffolding and and still the the sheriff who's in charge of all this uh, he sheriff had, in charge of the execution in the in the Victoria jail he's waiting for the official letter uh, 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 that the execution is to go forward or not. And right up right. even when it's supposed to go. And he's just, he's just, uh, racked with anxiety. And then of course, you know, all the other questions about like, there was no executioner. So if this goes forward, is the executioner going to botch it or not? Because there was a botched execution before. So there's still a lot that, that you still don't quite know yet. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's sort of what makes the whole thing kind of interesting too. To, to as as you're going through the book, it's not just a case of this legalese of what's in the trial, what happens. There, there is that uncertainty, a lot of questions that go along with it. And I'm just curious to sort of a, a sort of get you out of here with this is given that and sort of the the story of it. And, and I don't want to say I've used this word earlier, but you know, the romanticism of these types of cases, which is super unfair, especially maybe to John Marshall uh, to romanticize uh, his murder. But what is it that you think a, a modern audience can or will take from this book? And, and what is the value for you as the historian in telling this story? And what do you expect or hope that audiences can take away from it? Uh, I mean, uh, for me, it, it, it was fun. Of course, right. playing, yeah. playing the detective and playing the detective with real stuff um, because you can't just make it up. Uh, you can't just have a convenient ending and so forth. So I, I, I have, I've always, I mean, I'm loved history from when I was was young. So I, I always like finding stuff out about, about the past. 
Um, and this case was great because it's like the, the trials of Albert Strobel aren't just those two, the, the two official trials in the courts. The trials are his life. And yeah. aside from his physical disabilities, his emotional, intellectual ones, um, it's it's just a, you know, it's his life. He just keeps, keeps getting kicked in the, in the teeth by, <laughs> by life. And it's like, well, geez, you know, is he going to get a break or not? Uh, so yeah. there's that story. And, and yes, it's true. I had wanted, I started the, 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 the project with the title of the death of John Marshall. And I soon realized that I can't find out anything about John Marshall. You know, I can't write a, his biography because the sources aren't there. And, you know, I would love to have written a book about his life, but I can't. And that's where, you know, it's like, as a historian, it's like, it's, you know, it's not that John Marshall wasn't important and that doesn't get, get his due. It's that we don't have the sources to do it. And that's where you, you know, what, when a person reads history nowadays, you have to remember that, that history, the history we hear is slanted towards the people who leave records, right? Yeah. And um, it's, I always think of that, that saying, the, 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 the pompous, poncy saying of uh, you get out of class societies like, like the UK and, a, you, know, you know, we have an old family. Well, everybody's family is as old as anybody else's. We all, yeah. we all are descended from one woman in the in Ethiopia, uh, you know, 250,000 years ago. So everybody's family is as old as everybody else. What they mean by we have an old family is we have a family that can that has records of itself that go back. And who has records of itself that go back to the Norman Conquest? Well, the aristocracy. So the rich yeah. and aristocratic have an old family, just as the rich and powerful have history because they can record it back. So there, there's that element of, you know, and even with Strobel, you have to, it's the irony of history that people who come to the attention of the police and of the courts, yet they can have their stories told in a way that, you know, the law-abiding neighbors can't because, you know, Strobel's law-abiding neighbors. We don't know anything about because they weren't right. they weren't charged with murder. Yep. <laughs> um, there's that. There's just like like just putting yourself into another situation, uh, and into another time, and and thinking about how people, you know, coped with life as bad stuff happened. To me, that's always. I mean, it, it, it it's it's a part of that. You know that human connection that we can make across time. So that there's that as well. It expands our, our, our horizons in a way. That um, yeah, it just, Oh, the other thing is that, 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 you know, if this book has a, an, a moral, you know, Aesop would write a moral of a story and that is don't murder people. And if you're going to, if you're going to murder people, don't make so many stupid mistakes about it. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to be a murderer, yeah, I guess right. be a smart murderer. Is the, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, at the time how yeah, murderers, you know, they shouldn't get to know the people and so forth. But of course, motive was one of the main ways in which Victorians figured out murders. Um, there was no such thing in their perspective as a motiveless murder because human beings were rational and they were also moral. They did bad or they did good, but they right. did either for a reason. If you were a sociopath in the 19th century, you would never get caught because there were, you had no motive. And so, yes, you could just wander around, kill people, and nobody could connect you. Uh, because there was no motive. Right. And um, so I suppose, yeah, you get away with murder if you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, fortunately, times have changed, and, and yes. I think we were a little more successful at uh, tracing those people down. But uh, very uh, excited to have people go check out this book again, The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier. Written, of course, by Chad Reimer. Chad, where can people find not only this book, but some of your other work as well? Um, Amazon.ca. Write it. Caitlin Press. So if you if you Google Caitlin Press, their website, you can order it from there. Uh, as I said, order it from Amazon. Um, it is will be in public libraries. I don't know if your public libraries are still lending books, but ours aren't. So it's... Things have stalled a bit with that. The book's getting into the public libraries because we can't sign them out at this point. Yep. Um, so those those are the main sources. Yeah. So yeah, and you know it's tough. <laughs> I, I've had a couple of friends too who have had books come out over the past couple of months, and yeah, I, you know I just I, I feel for it because you know when the book that I did came out a couple of years ago, we had a big event for it, and yeah. uh, it was a lot of fun, and you get to sort of celebrate the culmination of this project. So I certainly yeah. feel for you that, you know, these the, the circumstances of the book coming out. But, you know, I, I had the chance to read it. And, and maybe the, the sort of a, a silver line is that more people are reading perhaps now than they, they were a couple months ago. So hopefully more people will check it out again. The book is The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder and Justice at the End of the Frontier, written by Chad Reimer. Chad, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So there you have it my conversation with Chad Reimer and my thanks to him for joining me and to our friends over at Caitlin Press for helping to set it up again. The book is The Trials of Albert Strobel, Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us the likes, the ratings, leave a comment, do all that stuff helps other people find the show, helps us keep going here as we have moved to the weekly schedule, which I have to say that I'm very much enjoying. So hopefully you are as well. And please do check out some of our past episodes. Last week, Mia Donovan talked about her documentary, Dope is Death, looking at the use of acupuncture to treat uh, addiction. Uh, and that film is still available through Hot Docs. Uh, past episodes, Janice Forsyth, talking about her book on indigenous self-determination in Canadian sport. Talk to Amanda Bittner about political leaders and why they matter in elections. 
the documentary Influence, which again, very relevant today. That's available on CBC Gem. The documentary is, you know, we talked about Hamilton. The show Hamilton is public history. Uh, at the start of this period where we went to the weekly, we, you know, we built a hockey team, fantasy hockey teams and put them in a simulator against each other. So a lot of great stuff that we've done over the past few weeks that I've, I've really enjoyed. So hopefully you have as well. Of course, if you have ideas for what you want to hear on the show, please feel free to get in touch. HistorySlam at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And of course, as always, head on over to activehistory.ca for all sorts of new great articles and pieces over there as you know it just keeps coming you know lots of great stuff over the past few months so head on over to active history so that'll do it for this week's episode thanks again for listening we'll be back with you next week but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.